Well, isn't that strange? I have been thinking all week about coming up front to preach about a passage in which there's a sermon so long that someone falls asleep, falls out a window, dies, is raised to new life, and then the preacher keeps on preaching for at least six more hours. He preached 12 hours long. I promise you will not have a 12-hour sermon today. As a matter of fact, this is actually kind of a difficult passage because it's, it is captivating, isn't it? This story about what is going on. You know, Paul's preaching. The guy falls down and he dies. He raises him up to a new life. And they just sort of move on. But here's why it's difficult. It's what, what is this about? What is the application we're supposed to take away from this? Uh, it doesn't matter how long the pastor preaches, is the one the pastor might like to hear. It, uh, the congregation, on the other hand, might say, don't kill anyone with your sermon today. What, what is this actually about? And I struggled with this passage all week long. And I have to tell you, I'm just not sure I really got the grip of everything that this is about this morning. But I did pick up on something. And it came to me after wrestling with the text. And let me tell you something. Uh, you know, one of the things that God wants us to do with the scriptures is wrestle. He really does. He gives us a word that isn't just like A equals B, B equals C, therefore, you know, do this or do that or stop doing this thing over here. He gives us a word that actually we, we have to take into our hearts. David says in the Psalms, your word have I hidden in my heart so that I might not sin against you. That doesn't sound like just reading an instruction manual, does it? It sounds like something we wrestle with, something that, you know, because our hearts sometimes don't want to fit God's word very well. I'm really going to push this metaphor. But they don't want to fit God's word, do they? We hear the word and we say, I don't want any part of that. We push it out. Or we say, if I have to put that word in my heart, there are all these changes that are going to happen. And I really don't want to change or I'm not comfortable with change. I don't even know how I'd begin to do these sorts of things. This is a hard Thing for us to do. God, I think, really wants us to wrestle with his word. And as I was doing that this week, there was something that stuck out to me about this passage. Did you notice Kelly, bless her heart, she had to read all of those awful names, right? And they're hard. It's like Aristarchus. We don't know anyone named Aristarchus or Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea. Like, those in, in one, two, three, four, five, six words, there are three words that we should never have to pronounce in our lives. This is a tough one. Why are there all, and did you notice as well that normally when scripture is describing an event, it's, it's speaking in the third person. He or she went and did this. But did you notice it changed to the first person here? We took passage and went. Luke himself was part of this group that left most likely Corinth and headed on out to Philippi and then down to Troas. Okay, Philippi, of course, is in modern-day Greek, uh, Greece. Excuse me. Troas is in modern-day Turkey. 
And Paul is retracing. This is his third journey. He went uh, through the churches in Asia Minor in Turkey. He got to the coast at Ephesus, the western coast of Turkey. And then he crossed over into Achaia, where Thessalonica and Philippi were, down into Greece. Uh, We don't know if he stopped in Athens. Most likely he spent three months in Corinth. And then he headed back up because he, he wanted to just go straight from Corinth back toward Jerusalem because he wanted to make it to Jerusalem for the Passover, but there was a plot against his life from the Jews. So he didn't get on this ship where it would be just him and this this handful of Christians with him and a bunch of Jews going back for the Passover who wanted to kill him. Instead, he headed back again the land route through Macedonia, and he ended up in Troas. And that's really where we're going to pick up the story. Before Before we get all the way to Troas, though, I just want to point something out. Let's talk about all those names. Okay, Aristarchus and Gaius, who are these guys? They're two co-workers of Paul's who were dragged into the theater in Ephesus by the mob. Remember that story from last week? Timothy is Paul's traveling, I'm sorry, it was two weeks ago. Timothy is Paul's traveling companion and eventual pastor of the church in Ephesus. Tychicus is mentioned several times in Paul's letters as a traveling companion in Ephesians 6.21, Colossians 4.7, 2 Timothy 4.12, and Titus 3.12. Paul knew these guys. Trophimus is mentioned again in Acts 21.29 and in 2 Timothy 4.20. Trophimus is an Ephesian who is identified with Paul in Jerusalem. This is in the book of Acts. It's uh, erroneously claimed that Paul brought him into the temple, and this begins the series of events that leads to Paul's arrest and eventual trial before Caesar in Rome. These aren't strangers. These are people that Paul was close to, and he's traveling with them. What's it like to travel with friends? Have you ever had the opportunity to do that? It's pretty cool, isn't it? Uh, Kayla and I, it's our wedding anniversary yesterday, 17 years married, and my in-laws were gracious enough to take our giant pile of children and send us off to the coast for a couple of days. And we don't get to do that very often. And while we were out there, it was just so good to be traveling as adults. (laughs) And just the two of us and reconnect in that way. Thank you, Grandma and Grandpa. <laughs> and then, uh, when I was in seminary, I, when I, we've seen some pictures from my trip to Turkey, Greece, and Rome, and I took almost four weeks with about 20 or 25 classmates, and we traveled all throughout these different regions, and it was so much fun to travel together and to see all these things and do all these things. Uh, we... Uh, we told jokes together. We, we went to one of these big Roman theaters, right, where the, the structure of the building is such that if you're on the stage and you're speaking out to the audience, everyone can hear you in every part of the building. And so we, we had at this one very well-preserved theater somewhere in Turkey, I don't remember where, we, we all uh, put on a show, like people would sing a song or tell a joke or something like that. Oh, it was so much fun. We just had a blast doing all this. When we got to Rome at the end of the trip, we all knew each other really well. Uh, some of us went to see the play Julius Caesar uh, in the Forum in Rome, 
around where he was assassinated. Very cool. And we got to do it together, and it was better because we were together. It's so fun to travel with friends. And isn't it interesting that the Bible gives us this picture of Paul traveling with people that he has gone through life and death with? Do you think that's on accident? I don't think so. And the reason is because we get the list of names and we're like, okay, you know, it's hard to read a list of names. But then we get this story at Troas where Paul, he knows that he may never see these people again. He planted this church. He nurtured these people in the faith. And, uh, and they get together on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, and they break bread, it says. Why is this significant? You have to go back to the, the beginning of the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 2, where it says that, well, I'm not going to go back. It says the, the group of disciples, they made it a habit to get together, to have fellowship, to break bread, and to listen to the apostles' teaching. And it's a sense not just of something formal that we do on a, on a Sunday morning, but when the early church got together, they always got together around a meal. They broke bread together. As a matter of fact, the way they celebrated the Lord's Supper was almost certainly they would be having a big dinner together. And in the middle of it, the, the apostles or someone would stand up and they would say, by the way, this fellowship that we're having together, this good meal and friendship that we're sharing, it's all because of Jesus, who on the night he was betrayed took bread. He gave his body so that we could be together in this way today. Always in the, concept, in the context of fellowship. So on the first day of the week, verse 7, they came together, it says, we came together to break bread, to worship to listen to the apostles' teaching. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Why would Paul have been doing that? It's not just because he loves the sound of his own voice. It's because he loves these people, and he knows it's the last time he's going to see them. And he has, oh, and don't forget. Oh, and keep on doing this. And oh, he doesn't want to leave them missing a single thing. You ever been to a party like that? My, my wedding was like that. Let me just tell you, the James side of the family knows how to party. Those folks are excellent. The Hodge side of the family, not so much. Like my own wedding, we got out there, you know, we do the ceremony, we go to the reception, and, and then the dancing starts. And after an hour, I'm like, yeah, I'm done. This is good. And like seven hours later, we're all still there partying, and everyone's dancing, and my mom tries to go to bed, and, you know, some of the family goes, Sydney, where are you going? And mom's like, ah! I've got to run out of there because the James side of the family knows how to party. They are awesome. They are so good at this. And that's, that's sort of what's going on with Paul. He's like, I'm just not ready for this night with you to end. Now, something you need to know about the early church when it gathered, we have weekends. Who loves the weekend? What's everybody working for? The weekend. Very good. So we don't just quote scripture here. We quote pop music. It's great. Everyone's waiting for the weekend. But there are no weekends in the ancient Roman Empire. So these people are getting together for dinner after a full day of work. And there are no labor laws. It's not like, okay, you put in your eight hours, or even you put in your 10 or your 12 hours. It's, we worked you until you couldn't work any longer. And then they get together to worship, 
They're not maybe in the best sort of frame. of They're not rested and ready. And so this poor guy, Eutychus, Paul keeps on talking until midnight. It's been six hours. They haven't even eaten yet. I just want you to know, I will never preach so long that we can't eat because I love to eat. So if you just want, if you want a shorter sermon, serve lunch. We'll be fine. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where they were meeting. It's, imagine it this way. It's like, you know, on, it, we get kind of warm nights here, don't we? Uh, it's only just now cooling down. But we get warm nights, and then imagine, like, you've got all of the lights turned on and the air conditioner is struggling to keep up, right? And, and Paul's been talking for six hours. Not me, Paul. Paul's been talking for six hours. And... Don't you think everyone's getting sleepy? I mean, Eutychus, he's not falling asleep because he's bored out of his mind. He's falling asleep because he's just tired. They're having this amazing fellowship with each other. But Eutychus, poor Eutychus, he's just all worked out. and He's sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. God bless Luke for writing that verse. When he was sound asleep... He fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. What was everyone going to remember about their last night with Paul? It's the night Eutychus died. I want to take you back to the Old Testament, to 1 Kings chapter 17. I encourage you to turn there in your Bible if you've got it. We're going to spend a few minutes here. Elijah, uh-oh, this is not the correct passage. No, it's not. Perfect, it is the correct passage. Elijah uh, has just announced a drought to King Ahab. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And it happened exactly as Elijah said. Sometime later, verse 7, the brook dried up. Elijah was out in the wilderness living by a brook, and he's being fed by ravens. And then the brook dries up, and the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied. Do you you catch that? The Lord your God lives. I don't have any bread. I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain. So she did it. And the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. What do you think that was like for Elijah and the widow of Zarephath and her son? They stayed together all of this time. They got to know each other. They got to love each other. 
Elijah was served by them, and Elijah, by God, provided for them. And sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. And she said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? What was the widow of Zarephath going to take away from her amazing association with Elijah? My son died. I think Elijah must have been just as heartbroken as the widow. I think Elijah had a real friendship and relationship with these people, grew to care about them. He shared life with them. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. What must that have been like for Elijah? Why did he stretch himself out three times? I think it probably went like this. Lord, you can't be serious. Look, look at what's happened here. Did you preserve them this far only to abandon them now? And he gets, he says, you've done so many miracles through me. Do one more. And he stretches himself out on the boy the first time. Lord, let this boy live. And he stands up. And nothing. And he gets a second time, stretches himself. Lord, let this boy live. And he gets up. And nothing. And a third time. Lord, let this boy live. And the boy wakes up. Oh. Folks, do we go before the Lord and ask for his help and give up and get angry? Do we stretch out one time? Well, that's it. There is no God and he doesn't love me even if he's out there. Do you go the second time? Lord, I'm not kidding. I need your help. Do you go the third time? There's nothing magical about the number three. This isn't if you just ask three times, you know, it'll come. Like, uh, what's Candyman or something, whatever that horror movie is? No. It's not what it's about. But I want us to see maybe that even Elijah asks three times. There's a parallel here. Do you pick it up? We're not reading this just for fun this morning. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, stretched himself out on him, put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He is alive. And so he was. 
Then Paul went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. I just, are you serious? Like, he's like, let's see, I've been preaching so long, this guy dies. We've been waiting, you know, for dinner. Everyone's hungry. He falls out of the window. You know, I get down, I raise him up to life. Let's eat! And I go upstairs. By the way, I'm not done. Six more hours of preaching, everybody. And they get on going. You know what? No one left. I think no one left, especially after Eutychus was raised. Nobody said, okay, Paul, let's not push our luck here. Like, you already killed one person. Let's not, you know, see if God will raise a second tonight. Everyone was like, this is so good. And it says, at the very end, after talking until daylight, God bless you, Paul. He left, and the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. You know, sometimes we like to joke in ministry and you, you don't have to be a pastor. You can tell this story in any context. You know, ministry would be great if it wasn't for all the people. Does anyone here ever feel like that in your life? My life would be great if it wasn't for all these jerks everywhere. Hey, we say that in all sorts of contexts. Don't we say it in good contexts and bad contexts? Man, I love my family except for all the people in it. Like, you know, wow, I have these great friends. I wish they weren't such idiots. We have these sorts of things. We have this love-hate relationship with people in general. I had a professor in college, God bless him. He got up front, and uh, the first class we had, he said, I just want you all to know I have a general dislike of people. Like, this is going to be an interesting class. <laughs> he actually was a great professor. But yeah, we all kind of identify at some point, don't we? People are, are tough. Uh, as, as the old saying goes, uh, women can't live with them, can't kill them, right? Uh, you can apply it. You can turn that around, by the way. That's just the way I heard my friend say it. So uh, I would never say such a thing. People are hard. As good as people are, they are hard. It's hard to do this church thing together. People come here all the time from churches where they've been hurt. And you know what? Just by the law of averages, I'm sure that there have been a person or two who have gone out from here hurt. Whenever I encounter those folks, you know, my message is always the same. Church is like family. And family is good, but it's hard. It can be hard. We're going to blow it sometimes with each other. The question is, what do we do when Eutychus falls out the window and dies? What do we do when we have a disagreement that boils over into open conflict in our church? What do we do when someone offends us, someone we're supposed to be friends with, family with, someone we're supposed to do church with? What do we do? You know what the easy thing to do is? Of course you do. You find a new church, right? That's the easy thing to do. The problem, of course, is that we just take our problems with us. The next church is unlikely to be better because we're there. Somebody once said, if you ever find a perfect church, don't go. You'll ruin it. 
just part of our life together. Paul, uh, the Proverbs say, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Did you know, you know if you stopped, that's, that's a neat saying, isn't it? That's great. Like, I want to be sharpened. But do you think being sharpened is fun? Is that pleasant? you know what you're doing when you're sharpening something? You are shearing off bits of whatever that is. I've got knives, you know, kitchen knives at home. And every once in a while, I sharpen them. I've got this thing when you run the knife back and forth inside, and it, and it grinds little bits of the knife away until it's sharp again. Does that sound pleasant? As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Maybe we'd rather stay dull. Maybe that's the easier thing. But it's not the better thing, is it? The other thing, the surprising thing about kitchen knives, do you know, do more accidents happen with sharp knives or dull knives? Dull. I, uh, when I was on my sabbatical back in 2019, uh, we were at the coast, and uh, we'd, I think, just gotten there the night before, and I was cutting a piece of bread in the kitchen. And, uh, and it was frozen, Right? There's this piece, it's been in the freezer. I pulled out the loaf of bread. You know, I peeled off the slice, and then I wanted to cut it in half because it didn't fit in the toaster. And so I was like, I can cut a frozen piece of bread. You cannot cut a frozen piece of bread safely with a bread knife. I promise. I was going, you saw, saw. So this is how you know you should stop, right? When you're sawing at it and nothing's happening. But I kept going because I am a genius and I'm going to get it done. And I eventually sawed right over the tip of my left index finger. And I thought I'd cut it off. And I was like, this is great. We just got here. It was a Sunday morning. We were going to go to the Eco Church in Morro Bay. I was all excited. Instead, I'm going to urgent care, you know, bleeding everywhere, thinking I hope that they don't have to, like, reattach my finger. I hope they could just, like, sew it together. They glued it together, which was both cool and horrible. But sharp knives do less damage. Because you don't, when they're dull or when you're cutting something that not even a sharp knife can cut, they slide around everywhere. You've got to apply more pressure to get the same amount of work out of it, and you lose control of the knife, and you end up cutting the things that you absolutely did not want to cut instead of the things that you did. See, we need each other in order to be the Christians that God is making us to be, the followers of Jesus God is making us to be. And I guarantee you that even if we're getting bits of us shaved off by the iron sharpening iron, we're doing less damage than if we were dull slashing at each other. We need each other. And God is the glue that will hold us together. God is the one who makes this work. Is there any government in the world that's lasted forever? No. They all fail. Why? Is it because they were badly built? Well, that helps. But it's because they're all run by people. Is there any club that's been around forever? Is there any family that gets along perfectly all the time? Any family that doesn't have somebody in it that everyone hopes won't show up at whatever holiday you're celebrating? I'm sorry if you're that family member. You're always welcome here. 
God cares about our fellowship together. And when something happens that threatens to destroy it, he brings his power to bear. God doesn't let Paul's last night in Troas be remembered for the death of Eutychus, but for the amazing gift of friendship and fellowship he gave his people. We can do this. We can do this here. Not because it'll always be easy, not because it will never hurt, not because we all like each other equally all the time, but because we have the God who raises Eutychus.